Welcome back to another edition of the Red Wall Podcast. I'm your host, as usual. My name is Marcelo Inostroza, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number 84, entitled Dr. Trek. Guys, of all the souls that I have encountered in my quest to interview geeks involved with the Star Trek culture, uh... YouTube people involved with the Star Trek culture. I think in this episode, I have found the golden egg of people that try to educate other Star Trek fans who may not be so knowledgeable about how much actual stuff there is in the Star Trek universe. And the one guy who really tries to shine a light on the people behind the scenes a little bit more than um, other other, uh, Star Trek historians and other fans may or may not do. I would have to say if there is a Star Trek library out there somewhere in the galaxy, this gentleman would um, be the custodian of the whole goddamn thing. And it was such a pleasure to speak to him about Star Trek. Uh, This one is a really, really long one. So uh, buckle in, guys, because I think it's uh, one of my finest conversations. So with all that being said and out of the way, here's my conversation with Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Welcome to the Red Wall, Larry Nemechek. It's such a pleasure to have you here. You have no idea. Well, thank you, Marcello. I, I mean, I know you're global with the podcast, but I feel like I'm East Coast and I get to East Coast events and people so rarely that uh, it's a pleasure. Where I usually start out with my trek with my with uh, people that I have on the podcast who like science fiction is I normally start out with uh, what was their first uh, exposure to science fiction in general? Like, was it Star Trek or was it just something else? Like, did you read books as a kid or uh, how did you uh, get connected to science fiction? Yeah. No, I was um, I, I tell people all the time that I was a NASA kid before I was a Star Trek kid. And um, I was always I, I wasn't like killer science fiction. I read science. I remember reading The Runaway Robot by Lester Del Rey. And I mean, some, you know, the spaceship under the apple tree and some kids some kids science fiction and then graduating up to that. But I read a lot of things and I read a lot when I was a kid. And then somewhere in junior high, I do remember I read the rise and fall of the third Reich in the seventh grade. (laughs) I was a big history buff. And, and for some reason, about the time I got hit junior high, it's like my fiction reading just, I kind of burned out. And then I, but I was, I loved history and I loved, you know, I liked science and I had a million hobbies and, you know, I was a map. I could have been a Sheldon map nerd or I guess Sheldon's a flag nerd. But anyway, I collected stamps, but I built models and I did model rocketry. And my mom had made me take piano lessons. And by the time I was in high school, I was glad. Um, and, I, you know, I played in bands and things. But I had a million different interests and um, and not, you know, not specifically sci-fi, but I was totally open to it. And I I wasn't a real big fan of. I mean, horror actually made me scared. And I know a lot of people like they love to be that scare feeling from horror 
same thing with um, with roller coasters. And that was not me. I was like, why do I put myself, why put yourself through agony? How do you enjoy that? And I mean, I get it. People get off on that sometimes, but it, that wasn't me until I realized that horror movies were just as they, they were almost sometimes as comical as they were scary, <laughs> especially as the years went by. But no, it was my, um, and I've told this story a lot. My ninth grade science teacher, uh, like I remember my older brother running our TV. I had a 10 years older, older brother. And I remember watching Lost in Space, you know, all the time. And I remember vaguely there was a show about a guy with pointed ears out there somewhere, but I never watched it. And then in the rerun times, and when um, the animated were on Saturday morning, my ninth grade teacher, science teacher, I remember long story short, kind of shaming me into what she's like, oh, Larry, I can't believe you're not watching Star Trek. And uh, so I went home and started watching, you know, after school reruns. And that's within a year or two was pretty hooked before I realized it. And it was just the the you know, you loved everything about it, especially back then, because there was nothing else like it. But seeing it every day after school like that, we were the original binge watchers, I guess. I never thought of that until just now. I guess the after school kids in the 70s and 80s were the original binge watchers, but daily, daily, you know, but it was the whole world building and the fact that it was consistent and the fact that all the cool stuff they did, there were there were a couple of, you know, tweaks here and there, things got off. But for the most part, I remember I remember when the, the making of Star Trek came out and when the tech manual came out and I got I remember going into school and telling my two, you know, my two best buddies. I was like, look, see, I told you the insignia does match the color of the shirt. I mean, I remember that being a big deal, but that everything was so fresh and new then, you know? And um, so, yeah, the continuity. And then after a while realizing out of everything else I was involved in and like, you know, life and getting out of school and going to college and all this stuff that, uh, that, that was still a big part that. And, and then finding fandom and finding clubs and conventions and getting, you know, active in that and, and I don't know, just I enjoy doing that kind of thing, but just realizing eventually as the years went by that I had a, you know, as I gradually went and became a reporter, I had a theater major and a journalism major um, and didn't go into acting per se, but I kept it up, uh, you know, on the side and I directed plays and that world. But I also interviewed and wrote news and worked at newspapers Um that all those skills were really good because there's a lot of communicating going on with Star Trek and like people, you know, getting their pants on fire about something and you go in and calm people down a little bit or you go and read and do a little research and come back and tell people. And then eventually that turned into doing, you know, my passions were canon working, you know, doing the, the real stars and then fitting them in with the fictional stars and star charting, which was its own little thing, but also like the behind the scenes and learning about Bob Justman and Dorothy Fontana and Gene Kuhn and, in the original generation and then people since then. And so it was a real dream to do my own self-published concordance like B. Joe's concordance that let me got on the right people's radar to do the next generation companion, the official book for pocket. And then moving from Oklahoma out to LA with my, with my new little family and, um, and then do everything else that came from that and working so much with the franchise here in the first 15 years. And then we had no star Trek for 12 years and then doing kind of all the, entrepreneur stuff that i do now like portal 47 and all that but the whole time all about star trek all about fandom all about connecting the professionals the backstage people's stories with fandom because the actors get the attention you don't have you don't have to worry about that it's um 
until they go off the radar screen, like the older actors, maybe. But it's just so much. I say with Portal, there is so much Star Trek that people have no idea how much Star Trek they have no idea about. And that's always going to be around. And now we're back cranking out the new stuff. So that'll that'll be around. Sorry, your original question was. Oh, I cannot presume to tell you to shut up because I would no. never tell you to shut up. Please presume. In your diatribe there, you mentioned that there's this whole part of Star Trek that the general fandom doesn't know because they focus on the people in front of the camera. But there's so many people. Which is normal. That's natural. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. But there's so many people uh, behind the camera that make Star Trek go and that give Star Trek its lifeblood. And for 95% of what we see on a screen, that's fine. Or it used to be. Now, increasingly, the more genre shows that are out there, that's not so much. But, you know, as long as you're just watching My Mother the Car or, you know, Dragnet or something, or, you know, name something, Hawaii Five-0, uh, that's fine. But if it's Star Trek, there are so many layers to it that people want to know not only what the layers are, but what were the layers that were, what were the roads not taken and who's making the decisions and who's designing this and who has the say and who's sliding stuff in as the joke, you know, and who said, no, you can't do that in joke. And who says, that's cool, but why don't we do this instead? You know, like visual effects and art and props and, and, and writing and wardrobe and, you know, and, 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 and all of those people convey the Star Trek that people follow. And, and fandom has so many different niches. Some people are like, you know, they they love the ships and they're ship porn addicts, <laughs> you know, and they're tech heads. And then some people are cosplayers and some people do prop building. And, and we have the shippers that do fan fiction. You know, I mean, it's like and people love just cataloging the music and the soundtracks of, of Trek. And there's so, everybody has their little niches that they love, but it's all it's all part of the big hole and people enjoy the whole thing. I'm a writer. When I'm a part of panels. With my friends, with with the small little uh, uh, community that I have, Star Trek for me starts and ends with the people who actually write the show. I have enjoyed Star Trek my entire life, but I never was a fan of the original series. I grew up with the original series movies, right? So I mm -hmm. learned to love Star Trek with the original crew when they were much older. I revisited uh, TOS, TNG, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise... All of that with with Netflix and and uh, and you know whatever streaming service I had, and through that I I learned that my favorite um, Star Trek of all time was the the TNG era. There was something about the original series that I just couldn't connect to. When were you sampling? Like how far back? I mean, was this five years ago or ten years ago? No, no, this was like eight years ago. I hear this a lot now, which throws me because that's what I grew up with and that's what all there was, right? And that's what, mm -hmm. you know, and you can say, well, you wouldn't have any of the modern series if it wasn't for the original series. And I, and I hear you, you like intellectually get that, right? It's really something to force myself to realize. I mean, I don't want to, but it's just a whole paradigm to think about. But I've heard so many people, not, not whining about it, but so many people, fans, sincerely saying, I really want to watch the original series and appreciate them, but it's just really hard for me. I love the original series, but I don't love it as you would love it. Because there's things about it for me that I just, I'm like, why don't you just tone it down a little bit? Why do you have to be so... My writer's brain just kicked in there. I was like... Yeah. I acknowledge that if it wasn't for TOS and if, if it wasn't for Gene, uh, DC Fontana... I mean, Gene Kuhn and Dorothy and 
and and Bob yeah. Justman and Matt. Yeah. I mean, we can go through. And the creative staff was also because they all were in the beginning. Uh, Bill Tice, the costumer, and Matt Jeffries, the designer of everything. Mm -hmm. But one thing I'll say about the episodes, when we say monolithically, it's the same way with Next Gen and this, especially the 26 episode a year era yeah, model. Yeah, um, it's 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 not a monolith like my favorite period of, of Star Trek is uh, is like late is the Gene Kuhn era. Now I know that it was Gene Kuhn that made Star Trek really zing for me, like brought the humor to it, brought a lot of the texture to the universe, you know, um, like late for like mid first season through mid second season. That's when I feel like Star Trek mature. But what I'm trying to say is it's not a monolith. Like there's plenty of clunkers in the original series. There's some awesome shows. And, and that whole thing about what do I, if, if somebody, especially a younger person doesn't quite can't really just cannot stand to watch it. Can't even though they want to, I will at least say, well, watch like sitting on the edge of forever because it's an atypical show. And it's, it's great. Episode. You know, I mean, like there's two or three shows that now I've got a list of what to show someone that says they really can't stand to watch the original series, but they want to. And there's two or three like that. But that's my point of, you know, there's the clunkers in the third season, especially when they were mm -hmm. cutting budgets. There's still some classic shows that I'd, I'd show somebody that hopefully they don't feel too over the top or they're too. I know some people just talk about the pace of things. What I want to do, though, sometimes is say. If there's any way to help this, let me show you what else was on TV in 1966 and 67, you know, and, and you go, oh, it's like, oh, this is, you know, this is better than all of that at the time. And, you know, yada, yada. But anyway. And I don't want you to think that I that I don't appreciate TV from back then, because one of my, uh, my two favorite franchises are Star Trek and Mission Impossible. And I love the original Mission Impossible from. Uh, mm -hmm. da, 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 the, the 60s right yeah but there was something about the science fiction in that particular era vis-a-vis -vis star trek that my, my my writer's brain couldn't i couldn't separate i don't want to come off as a as a as a prick or whatever i don't want to do that well i'm glad we clarified that <laughs> i think it's all charming i think you should leave it in my era of Star Trek is 90 Star Trek. It's Berman Star Trek. And mm -hmm. for me, that that is a particular You're point. in the biggest club. Yeah, yeah. No, but for me, that is a is a is a point of contention because like a couple uh, a couple years ago I found out some of the, I, I, I finally read some of the stories and, and some of the stuff that uh, people who actually worked with Rick Berman, all the stuff that started coming out about him. So I feel really bad when I say that. I was like, my favorite era is Berman Star Trek. I'm like, ugh. There's lots and lots and lots and lots of people. It's like a lot of things. This came up just a couple of weeks ago. But there are a lot of there are a lot of yeah. you know entertainment packages right. of things mm -hmm. that like, you know, what, Michael Jackson songs or uh Woody Allen movies or <laughs> you know, that you can enjoy, even though you kind of, you feel like maybe the person responsible. There are a lot of people that work very hard and shed a lot of talent and that brought a lot of people enjoyment. And even though the fact that, you know, now the person in the middle of that is, is, you know, problematic, to use a <laughs> diplomatic word, yeah. do you have to feel guilty that you're enjoying the product? But when, when, when uh, tens or dozens or hundreds of other people also worked on it, you know, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. from top from you know obvious people down to every you know the last assistant uh, uh, caterer you know whatever. Right. There's a whole comfort zone. Of, we are all kind of figuring that out. So don't. But my gosh, don't feel bad about TNG DS9 Voyager and Enterprise. I want to just know a little bit about how you got involved with Roddenberry Entertainment. Uh, you mean capital R, capital E? Well, let's see. Um, I mean, aside from, like, I met, I, I just told this story on the Trek Files for Gene Roddenberry's 100th birthday. Well, I, I told this. It's, it's on file. You can go back a year ago and see, yeah. see the, the story I told for the 100th. Um, when I got to meet Gene one time without a camera. Um, yeah, with, because I was following the signs and I didn't. Back when your cameras were a camera and they weren't <laughs> on your phone. Okay. And that sounds ridiculous now. You didn't have a, what, your phone was dead? What happened? No, I left it in the car because you weren't supposed to walk around the lot with cameras hanging off your neck like a tourist. And I didn't know then. I quickly learned. But that day, I did not know. My first trip to Paramount, I did not know that uh, that meant stick your camera in your bag and where you get where you're going, then take it out. But don't walk around in the open with your camera Um, because people want their privacy, whether it's a movie star or some suit with his mistress or whatever it is. People don't want cameras. Um, no, I, you know, I met him once, but enjoyed the shows. But then when we did move to LA um, in the process of moving to LA, I interviewed Majel for the companion, but then big time when we moved out and my wife, Janet was temping at Voyager as assistant script coordinator and then got the job full time when it opened no up full time. No way. Really? Um, yeah. And then, and then, um, Majel would was carrying she and Jean would have two or three big parties a year and have tons of people over at their house and they're big uh there in in um West LA and uh uh like one they always had an Oscars party and they had a they had a ballot where you could like your choice for who was going to win of the nominees and everybody put in 20 bucks and then at the end of the night they would add them all up and whoever like the first place with the best guesses and second and third got, you know, they divvied up the pot kind of a thing. But they would usually have a Christmas or a Halloween party and then some other kind of floater party. And Gene died, but Major kept that up. And when we were when we moved and Janet was on staff and I was kind of increasingly in the orbit of things um, like 94 and 95 and 96, we would go out out there and not that we were in, you know, so that was Lincoln. That was um yeah, Lincoln Enterprises, which today is Roddenberry.com, and they still had the retail going. But now it was it was just kind of being knowing them. And they would come by to back in the day when they kept the scripts, you know, on you could order scripts, and as the new scripts were churning out from TNG and DS9 and Voyager, um, they would come by uh and um pick up like script masters from Janet and and uh, her boss Lolita. They would come by and get the last, you know, the last three or four or five, six months worth of scripts. And so they could go and make copies and sell them. And that was their deal with Paramount. And I mean, there were little things like that. But then uh, as Major got older and when Rod came back into the family fold, as his mom's health declined and he kind of came back and was like, oh, I, I he ran. He was like the rebellious teenager. Oh, Star Trek is that thing my mom and dad do, you know, and then he kind of grew into this is the family legacy and I need to take this on. And as they made changes, then I, we, you know, we worked, we knew them and worked off and on in, in you know, one-off projects. I could go over and help catalog some things at times, which they've had a lot of people come over and do. So it was just kind of, kind of that way. And then once or twice we had some, 
some you know plans for different things that either did or didn't take off or whatever. And then if you mean just recently when um, when the podcasting world was starting to grow and explode, one of the things that happened was as as uh, Jean's and Majel's papers were like donated to UCLA, a lot of that. But that's it was like a fraction of what was still in their files in their corporate files including personal letters and things. So all those archives, they were trying to scan things, which was Herculean. That's huge. And so now they've been experimenting with 3D and scanning. And now we, and now um, in 2021 announced this big uh, Toyo company, a uh, scanning, making holographic scans of, of even, even like paper documents, much less, you know, 3D things. But there's all this emphasis and all that and how much you can learn about Gene and Majel and, and Star Trek and his thoughts and everything that we enjoy about it now. And also his thoughts about media and culture and religion and policing. And I mean, you name it, you know, the space, the space uh, race and the space agency and space exploration and intelligent, real, you know, UFOs and real intelligent life in the universe. And is there any really on Earth? <laughs> I mean, all of that is in there too, and you can go off and talk about all that. So Rod had this idea for basically what became the Trek Files and came to me uh, in late 2017, and it took a few months. They were, they were getting their network together because uh, Mission Log had been going for a year or two, maybe three, and uh, they, then two other podcasts joined the network that were existing, and Trek Files was the first um, the the little short truck files we do every week, 15, 20 minutes. That was the first show created after they decided to have a network. And that was the fourth show. So if that's what you mean by being involved with Roddenberry Entertainment. So it's been like a thing off and on over the years of, you know, here's ideas that should, especially when things happened, like when everything fell in 2005 and everything blew up, there was no new Berman Trek was over, but there was no new Trek period from anybody and Viacom split. And, in my case, Decipher and the official fan club blew up and it was all in the same year. And the movies came along, but I always knew the movies would be these oddball. The Kelvin movies would be these one off things until this cast got tired of doing them. If they'd come in and done a TV series based on that universe or even an animated or something, but they didn't and didn't seem to have too much interest in it. And um and I know there were the legal things of having this, the, the franchise split, which was never as big a deal as just what do people want to do? Um, and when none of that materialized, I was like, well, these movies are going to be they're going to be little like stubs on the main trunk of Star Trek. And I'm not I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean, just in reality. And that's kind of what they beca- I mean, we may have a fourth movie. Hopefully, well, there'll be more movies of some kind down the line. But what they'll be, you know, will they be the Chris Pine Kelvin cast or or what? Now Roddenberry is, and Rod is somebody though that he had this enormous legacy. Like, how do I top my dad? And he wasn't a born, you know, he didn't have this itch to go produce movies and TV shows and write them. Like, like Michael Pillar's son Sean has taken over the family business and done that, and others have done that kind of thing too. But he, but he wanted, to, he wanted to never give up on the legacy of his dad, not just about Star Trek, but like what his dad thought about the future and about people and diversity and about the environment and, you know, just all the progressive things that his dad and mom both were part of. And especially his mom spoke after Gene died, she, you know, kept the torch going for years and years and years. And, and he didn't want to let that go. And so they've got the Roddenberry foundation now to fund 
you know, medical research, much less environmental and, and, and racial and social justice programs and that kind of, or, or add to other ones. They just did when they last year, when they did the Gene 100th anniversary centennial birth, they, te- they uh, teamed up with this group called Shop Stands that lets you do things for charity, sell stuff. And they sold items that were cool, Gene 100th anniversary. But the, the proceeds in that case went to 350.org which was an environmental awareness, global change activist group. And the Trevor Project that, you know, advocates for and even gets involved in crisis for the LGBTQ community. So there's two different, you know, realms that uh, they've done. So that's Rod has tried to figure out how to have a business that supports that. And they gave up the retail finally that they'd had since, you know, the, the days when Gina Major were trying to pay their mortgage. Uh, back to the 70s, but they'd never, they've given that up. But now they're focusing on the podcasts and just advocacy. And, um, you know, when after the COVID, we had the first Trek Vegas convention again last year, and they they got back to the Roddenberry stage at Trek Vegas and did all kinds of programming that was a little more diverse and a little more intimate. So that, and if they can, and, you know, adapting that to other stages and other venues and experimenting with these 3D scanning, you know, about preserving the legacy that way and getting out to more people. So, and they've done some, they've done a couple of movie, experimental movie projects and things. The White Room was one. You can go to Roddenberry.com and see all this, but um, they're still trying to find their way. So I've just been happy to, you know, do the Trek Files and maybe one other project coming up uh, at some point that I'd like to do. It's a very small company and everything is down to earth and Rod's pretty, you know, down to earth too. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why I adore Larry Nemechek because he is <laughs> such an encyclopedia for Star Trek. It's amazing. I only know one other person and you actually uh, know him. His name is Father. He is a big Texan from... Oh, from... Tex, yeah. Texas yeah, yeah, yeah. Trek. It's yeah. Tex-Trek. Yeah, Tex-Trek. Actually, it was Trek and Starfleet Boy who convinced me to actually ask you to come on the show. Oh, okay. Be- because I had told them that I wanted you to be on the show, but I was scared to death. Because oh. um, I'm a Star Trek nerd, like, almost through and through. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a ship nerd, but I love the people who talk about Star Trek. People that honor the people behind the scenes. There was a time when they, I mean, things are so much better now. Like 10 years ago, I thought the whole weight of the world was on me when I was trying to figure this online thing out and there was no rule book. But like, if I didn't, you know, if I didn't do a blog post, you know, in 2010 about the first time Klingons were on camera, the anniversary or, you know, or people or people's birthdays and death days. Now there's 4,700 people out there doing that. And that's cool. (laughs) I hope everybody can find their own way to do something. But, you know, for a long time, it was uh, and, and people being savvy about how the intersection of how Star Trek works and how the entertainment industry works in general, you know, mm-hmm. and something you want to go blame somebody about. You want to blame the suits or you want to blame anybody, Alex Kurtzman or, or Rick Berman, or you want to blame somebody about it when it's really about or somebody at CBS or Paramount. Mm-hmm. And it's really about the way business is done, like you know, the way the guilds and the unions are that you can't just go do this because then so-and-so has to be paid, which is fair. And that's why this is, yeah. I mean, there's like a million different businessy and industry ways that things are affected that have nothing to do with Star Trek, but, and then the history yeah. of why things are, and, and, you know, the way 
filming relates to you know books and toys and the licensing world and i mean just all kinds of things like that and people didn't know and now there's the internet and not only do does the internet spread information the internet opens up platforms for you know all these people to come in and talk about and everybody takes their own little niche and talks about it and the sad thing, though, is there's also room in all that for for clickbait and morons and idiots who get off on negativity and, you know, trolls. So many people kind of pushed back and got and just gotten smarter and more educated yeah. so they can fight it off. I'm the biggest Alex Kurtzman supporter ever because Alex Kurtzman uh, was one half of my favorite uh, writing team of all time. So and they actually uh, he actually wrote. Uh, Star Trek oh, you're such a shill, Marcello. You're yes, such a shill. I'm a shill. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. <laughs> I'm I I am the biggest Alice Kurtzman uh, fanboy. I am not above calling him out when he makes mistakes. Because you should be able to critique anybody, anything. He uh, to this point has brought Star Trek, in my opinion, to a level that hasn't quite been seen before on television because the way that Star Trek is produced nowadays, it looks beautiful. When you have to do 26 eps a year or nothing, and there's no other formats available, then they're never going to do a, a Romulan series. They're never going to go off and do a series from this because mm -hmm. they'll have to invest so much in props and sets and, and all that. By the time they do that, they want to get seven years out of it, you know? When when I'm talking to my other Star Trek fans who are who are much more fans of the actors, there there's there's fans that you know love the ships. There's fans that are like you who are encyclopedias. My friends don't seem to approach Star Trek in the same way that I do. As I said before, mm -hmm. I'm a writer, so I appreciate Star Trek from a very specific angle that a lot of them can't seem to get their heads around. Well, like what? I look at Star Trek in terms of, you know, story, story structure and things like that. When I watch a Star Trek episode and I really get into it, in my head, I'm actually taking the story apart in my head and actually rewriting it. I'm like that. That's the way my um, wife is. In the old days, they would have been a script typist. But when things went to computer, it was about formatting and keeping up with pages and the changes going out. And then also they kept up with an awful lot of continuity. Mm -hmm. Like she came home one day and said, oh, great. There's a script where they say Voyager has 27 photon torpedoes. Great. Now I'm supposed to keep up with the number when they fire one. And Who I said, why did, they, why did they give a number anyway? And she goes, I know, I know. So, Who you know. Cares? So, well, it's like now you're going to be in a, what happens in the middle of the fifth season when you've gone through 37 photon torpedoes? Like then what? You have to come up with it. You know, it's kind of like the 55. <laughs> It's like the warp five speed limit. It's like, oh, great. Well, it was great in the story, but now we have to say we've gotten approval to bypass yeah. the speed limit. I tend to look at Star Trek like that. And a lot of my mm -hmm. Star Trek friends and a lot of my friends who aren't, who aren't writers like me and who understand that I love Star Trek, they say to me, why don't you just enjoy it? Stop looking at it like a writer. Just enjoy the goddamn show. And you say, that's how I enjoy it. Yeah, that's how I enjoy it. But I did, I, I did listen to my friends uh, in my most recent rewatch of Discovery. I watched uh, rewatch season two, and then I went right into season three when I got it on Blu-ray, and I enjoyed it so much more when I didn't take it apart.
Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a lot to say for that. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about the Calvin Timeline movies when they first came out? Did you feel that those movies sort of saved Star Trek and saved the entire franchise? In my estimation, the Star Trek fandom and a lot of people who love Star Trek, they were dying off. Star Trek was dying as a franchise. How would you look at that? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the last year or two of Enterprise, there was a lot of, what's the word? Malaise. There was a lot of... And you'd look at conventions and you'd look at Trek Vegas and you'd look at some other ones around the country. And it's like fandom, it had split during DS9. It's like people had to pick one or the other if they could find a station to watch it on. I mean, in the old days, right? Yeah. And then Enterprise had a lot of fanfare and then and then was got a little thin the second year and then was on the bubble. And okay, we know. And then it's gone in 2005. And there's like no future. And it was silly because a lot of the mainstream papers, even the entertainment papers, but but a lot of mainstream press was saying, well, Star Trek's dead. Oh, well, it had a good run. It had 39 years or whatever it was, you know, and I'm well, that's stupid because we're just we're sitting here watching people making movies out of Bewitched and Gilligan's Island. I mean, bad ones usually. <laughs> but, you know, it's like they everybody has thinks they have to go back and change something. It's got to be let's do a meta version of, you know, whatever. So. But it that was silly. It's like this this franchise, how many billions did it make? And how many does it make now? Like people are going to stop buying Kirk and Spock action figures or, or people are going to stop reading books. Things are going to atrophy a little bit. And maybe in 20 years, 30 years, the last audience does die off. But that's not going to happen because Hollywood will not let this sit here too long. And people were saying, maybe it, I mean, there, were, there were a lot of there were a lot of. Um, Things, you know, as the ratings went down, a lot of people were reading that wrong. For one thing, Enterprise, when it went off, there was all this storm about, uh, you know, the hot new show was Ron's Battlestar Galactica. The last season of Enterprise was the first year of BSG. And I had someone tell me this one time. There was all this perception because of the regular ratings and, and Enterprise was on UPN, right? Poor little crippled UPN that didn't even have the whole country. It was like. 80% of the country, you know, had a station that showed it. Um, and UPN was the crippled, even it and WB, WB was doing stronger than UPN. They both started at the same time. And it was all, it was stuck on this little network and got bumped around a lot. And, you know, a lot of the stations on UPN were hockey and basketball stations, and it would get bumped into two, just like DS9 did. It would get bumped into 2 a.m. in the morning and people would miss it. But the thing was... You, and then you'd look at the Nielsen's page, like in the trades, and here's like the top hundred shows. And Enterprise was always the best UPN show because the rest of UPN was crap usually. But even then, the best show on UPN was still like down in the 80s or 90s, you know, like out of the top hundred Nielsen ratings. And it's, it was like down there way pathetic. And it's like, oh, it's only staying on because it's Star Trek and it's on this dinky little crippled little network. But the thing is, that was like, small fish in a big pond galactica was getting all this attention because it was on sci-fi network but if you actually got you know and it was a big deal and big and flashy and people were raving about it but if you actually got the absolute number of people watching galactica the first season on sci-fi and the absolute actual number of people watching enterprise on upn there were a million more people watching enterprise every week than battlestar but it's because the perception was Enterprise was a tiny fish in a big pond, 
and Galactica was a big fish in a small pond. And that's the perception thing. Plus, TiVos and, you know, and uh, time, you know, we had VCRs were a big thing. Well, the next iteration digitally, no one, no one was measuring what was being time shifted, like recorded on TiVos, uh, except for TiVo back in the day. And there were reports in the last season of Enterprise that Enterprise was the number one show being recorded to watch later. And in the day, no one cared. It's like, we don't care because we want to know who's watching the commercials right now, not who's zooming through the commercials, you know, to get, you know, because you could do that on TiVo. You could drop a commercial, you could zip through it. And so they're saying, we don't care about that. That's, that's going to ruin the business model of how we make our money and how we finance anything. But now what do we do? We totally track that. It's just like the original series was all raw numbers. And the year the original series is canceled in 1970, here come everybody using demographics. And now, now that's, that's all the ratings are. Well, you know, the key demo of the 18 to 35 men and the 18 to 49 everybody's you know, like that's what's we don't want raw numbers. We want those key demos. And, you know, in the 70s, they go, gosh, guys, look here. The number one show for all the key demographic groups you want is Star Trek. And you canceled it. <laughs> and just the same way, the number one show that was time shifted on TiVo, you know, digital, digitally recorded was that you could measure was was Enterprise. And in the in the first moment, no one cared. Because it was such a new paradigm, but then with it now, that's all people do. Well, we didn't have, we didn't win our slot, but we're the number one show being recorded. Ooh, ooh, what a, what a hit! So it's like Star Trek's keep being ahead of the curve, you know, and then being punished for it. And anyway, th this perception about um, I forget exactly what you asked me in the beginning, but it, that's this, okay. I was trying to make a point here about how okay. it's always a lot of times Star Trek is underappreciated yeah. in the moment, and then it gets appreciated later. Just personally, I love when you go all wacky doodle uh, uh, about the numbers and you start talking about the Nielsen ratings. I love when you do that. We have a rating show coming up on on the Trek Files. Yeah. With um, we just had our uh, we just had John Wentworth as a guest. Who oh my God was at Paramount. Started <laughs> off as like a twenty three year old and he retired after it was CBS. He retired from there, mm -hmm. and still has a lot to say and share with people. He's teaching now, but. He was in promotion and marketing for ages, and we did a show that's coming up where he goes through and talks about ratings. And we look at a ratings report from first month of TNG, but then we also look at some of the when Next Generation was doing better than than Monday Night Football and 60 Minutes and Roseanne and all these hit shows. <laughs> but nobody knew it because it was syndicated and they had to get the numbers together and put it out in the world and show it. And then people were like in shock that Next Generation was doing better than all the network hit shows. What do you say to people who say Star Trek should only be this way and I don't want anybody to touch it? I don't want anybody, I don't want anybody to turn Star Trek into something that I don't believe it is. What do you say to those people? Well, first off, I, I, I understand that because if they, didn't, if they didn't love it, then they wouldn't care. Right. Okay. I mean, that's not an apathetic person. So that's passion. So, yay. But sometimes it's passion without context, maybe. Like, that's what, you know, if you stop and think about every time any, the newest thing happened in Star Trek, people were a little about it. People were so desperate for a Star Trek after 10 years after the first cancellation that uh, there was a lot of acceptance of the motion picture. It was updated. And after it came out, people, you know, people would laugh about it and call it the motionless picture or the Star Trek, the motion sickness, 
because I love that movie because it was like, ah, yes, there's been a lot of love kind of, there's been a lot of pendulum re-swinging on a lot of parts of Star Trek. And now we're, it's that way with the Mm -hmm. Niners and now it, you know, with enterprise even, um, and even Voyager. Uh, I'm kidding. I remember this. It's hard for people to now to realize that something, what is something as beloved as the Wrath of Khan? There was, when the word leaked out, they were going to kill Spock. There was a huge original series fanzine driven, like a, a lot of the women behind fanzines and the Spock and Vulcan love affair that, that started modern fandom through clubs and conventions. And now we have comic cons because conventions split away from the old lit con mold. Um, when it was more about actors and media than about books and authors, uh, not not that there's a competition, but that's you know that was the emphasis. Um, people, there was a whole marketing campaign to boycott the Wrath of Khan because unless you didn't kill off Spock, you oh know that's going to ruin the franchise. So why should we go support this? And you're going to they, they did polling and everything, huh? Are you serious? Oh yeah, I've, we did that's a Trek awesome. files on this. Yeah, there were and miss, Interstat, which used one. to be the thing. Yeah, they took out ads in the trades saying. Here's the results of our start. They did a professional, not, you know, here's a questionnaire to con. They did a professional sampling survey and came up, you know, like you're, if you kill off Spock and the Wrath of Khan, your licensing revenue will drop 32%. Your box office will drop whatever percent. And that was a big deal. And they were making some news out of it, but it really kind of just got more people curious to go see the movie. Now we look at it. And of course they brought, I mean, part of that was, that's what Leonard wanted. But then Leonard changed his mind <laughs> and then the search like, oh, look, the next movie is called The Search for Spock. Gee, do you think he stays dead? I mean, come on, guys, you know, spoiler in the title. But in the moment and going, what are these, you know, and it wasn't Gene running Star Trek, Two. It was the who's this Harv Bennett guy and who's this Nick Meyer guy? You know, it's like these new people, Paramount's the suits are having these new people and they're going to ruin Star Trek and. Yada, yada. And that was the in the moment. That was the meme of the moment. And but then flat fast forward to um, next generation. And you had that whole generation going, what do you mean? What is this bald French guy, Captain? You know what? No, Star Trek is Kirk, Spock and McCoy. And don't don't try to hear Here's where I first heard this term. They think if they slap Star Trek on it, we'll buy anything. (laughs) That's the first time that came up. And and there was, you know, but I'm I'm going Shut up, everybody. Gene is running this show. What is wrong with you? We wanted new Star Trek on TV, you know, weekly for 20 years now. I came into it halfway through that. Shut up. This is what we wanted, isn't it? You know, it's like, well, you're going to run them till they're 100 years old. And do you, do you want to recast them now when they're still doing movies? It's like, this is the perfect. And they didn't reboot anything. That's what Star Trek is special versus almost any other franchise. And that's why so many people did get upset with Discovery. And I understood it because I was a little upset about some of these things because well-meaning people. Well, I say this part of it was that there were like poor Discovery went through three different eras of who's in charge. It's like taking a cab ride uh, cross country and you have three different drivers, but the car never stops while the driver changes. That's what, you know, that's what the first season Discovery was like. And by the time they'd spent the money on a ton of stuff, maybe somebody else wouldn't have done that. But by then, the money had been spent. And there was no way they were going to redo it. In my personal opinion, the problems that Star Trek Discovery had was nowhere near the problems that Next Generation had. Because Next Generation, if you've seen that documentary, mm-hmm. Next Generation was a disaster, right? Yes. And if it hadn't been the first one with all that attention, 
setting up a new revenue stream for the studio, the same as UPN and Voyager and the same as CBS All Access and Discovery. If it hadn't been all, if it had been anything else, they would have pulled the plug and said, we're not wasting any more money on this. This is a doomed project. But Star Trek, it was under the microscope. The world was watching. It had to be done. And it was the it was the franchise. It was the launch. It was the um, it was the lead anchor for uh, a new thing, right? right? A new a new business thing, and it couldn't fail. It was too big. To, it was too important to fail. And the whole world was watching. And we're not going to let you know. Keep throwing. It was like motion picture had to be out on December seventh, or they would forfeit all these penalty monies to all the theaters. So it was like shipping the film cans wet. In your opinion, what do you think? Well, this is a little early to ask this because his era is not over yet. He just recently signed a five-year extension. Um, What do you think Alex's overall legacy, what do you think they're going to be saying about the Kurtzman era of Star Trek when he's all said and done? Do you think they're going to look at it positively or do you think they're going to look at it going, oh, if this guy was awful, you know, Berman was the best or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I, I talk a lot about the Star Trek pendulum and even, you know, forget Alex, even to talk about Rick and the Berman era, right. the last five or 10 years, you know, like Netflix brought everybody DS9 mm-hmm. and Voyager and Enterprise. But DS9 is the show that the world has gone 360 on or 180, I guess I should say, where yeah. people used to be like, I miss two shit, you know, the old world watching where, you know, you sure you could tape it and watch it later. But if it was on, if it got bumped to some weird time that you didn't know when it would get bumped to, or your local station just bumped it or whatever, but watching it in real time on a local station and, you know, like DVDs were just a hope. And then when you did get DVDs, they were, you know, they were expensive and everybody could afford that. But having, having the Netflix thing where instead of having the excuse being, or the reason being, oh my God, I missed two DS9s and I'm so lost. And I'm not talking Dominion War. I'm talking about like second or third season. You know, it's like, oh, who's this Brunt guy? And what what was the thing on Bajor? And what happened? Who is this? You know, even the slow motion arcs, they had popping in and out. People would go, oh, I can't keep up. I can't keep up. And then for all that to be on steroids for the newer shows. But on Netflix, people sit there and they get it and they watch it. It's like DS9 between being light streaming and then I mean, light serialized and then heavy for the dominion shows the dominion war shows between the streaming pioneering and just the darker grittier everybody is not black and white and and you know pre 9 11 here's all this talk about social liberties versus collective security and you know all of that all the things that ron wound up taking over to galactica and he just redid the changelings as cylons and did it his way really but- really Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go on that one, but please continue. No, no, I was gonna say, well, that's you know the whole thing about we're paranoid with the Cylons. How much are we gonna clamp down on our freedoms? Ah, okay, paranoid, okay. which is exactly what happened with the you know Earth on martial you, law and yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have uh, I should have let you finish. That was totally my bad. Yeah, but please yeah, continue. Yeah. No, no, I I mean, um, you know, the culture changed, and we looked at a show differently, and that's happened. You know, the original series that's gone back and forth two or three times. And next generation has, they all go through a period of being when they're hot, hot, new. And then when they cool off a little bit, because the new hot thing comes along. And then people actually go back and look at it and go, wow, that's starting to look a little dated here, here, and here. And then another five or 10 years goes by and people go, wow, that was so timeless because 
yes, it's of its time, but look at what they're still saying. It still holds up. And, you know, you can be bored by Shakespeare, but you can still, after 10 minutes, get into it. And you can, you don't have to do all Shakespeare in Elizabethan robes. You can, you can put it in Nazi Germany. You can put it in the American Civil War. You can put it in some, in the Roaring Twenties. You can put this show for its theme in a time and do it that way. And it, the timelessness comes through and there's clinkers. Yeah. But, and I'm not totally equating Star Trek to Shakespeare because there's only what I, I'm, forgive me. I can't rattle off. There's 26 yeah. plays or whatever it is. And there's just had the 800th episode with this last lower decks or excuse me. <laughs> there were like 800 plus episodes now, was, but yeah. um so no, Shakespeare is a Star Trek is not Shakespeare, but in that same way, every generation sees different things in it and can go highlight that. So um, this thing about about, uh, you know, that's part of it. And the pendulum swings and something is hot and then it's cold and it's not or even critiqued badly to say what's better, Alex or Rick. The jury is not out on the Berman era and it's still going to be looked at and reinvented. There was a in the about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, there was a campaign to get a fifth season for Enterprise before the cast got much older. And uh, it was kind of infamous because the person heading it up turned out to be a completely fake identity, which was weird. But oh my, God. my friend Doug Drexler, this is about 2010, 2010. So Doug um, got involved with it. And I thought, oh, well, this must be a legit thing if <laughs> if Doug is out there. But he had he was really invested emotionally in showing the upgrade of the NX-01 which was not his preferred way to go with the Starship design. He got overruled, but then he came up with all these later add-ons that would get it looking more enterprisey, constellation classy as it went along. Anyway, we did an interview for my video and blog, my original Trekland videos. And I'll never forget one time he said, we were laughing about this and he said, you know what? And this was when it was just starting to happen with the Netflix effect, right? And the DVD effect. But he said, you know what? There are all new fans of Enterprise that don't know they're supposed to hate the show. <laughs> and that's that's what happens. Every you know, new people come. There was a girl that a uh, young woman, I should say, married, who was talking about a lot of other things. But one of the things she said was she came in to she came she became a fan in 2020 and was watching the new shows. And then she was binging bits and pieces of every original next gen, everything. And then she would get in live or see people online who were critiquing and hating. Oh, you got to hate Enterprise. Oh, you got to hate Discovery. Oh, you got to hate Voyager, whatever. And she was like, wow, I didn't know or see any of this stuff. And I'm enjoying them as they are. And I said, oh, you're what I call a no baggage fan. Like you're fresh and new and you didn't, for better or for worse, you didn't live through the week to week of it. But also you haven't lived through all the you know debates and discussions. She's coming at it fresh now and for good or bad, that's a, that's a new point of view and that's refreshing. And that's from here on out, that will be anybody coming to Star Trek new will be there. Just like all the people that came to next generation and had no idea about the original series. Here to access it now than it has been over the years. So that doesn't last quite as long, but it is still a thing. So you're talking about Alex versus for one thing, Alex's run isn't over yet. Right now, I would say that people want to tie him down to the Kelvin movies when he was part of a committee, I'll just say. A lot of Alex's skill has been in, first, it was like saving emergencies, dealing diplomatically with groups, and then putting out fires. And then finally, when that got a little easier, he got to, like, he got to pick and hire Mike McMahon to do Lower Decks. His legacy may well be like Dick Wolf on, on Law & Order. 
I'm going to set these things up and I'll be here, but I'm going to let you people with visions go and run with that. And that's something we're just now figuring out. But so many people are so tied to, you know, whatever they didn't like about the Kelvins. The jury is way still out. So we'll see. And But the jury's still out on Rick. I think people are going to keep reanalyzing. It's interesting that you uh, brought up that young woman and you called her a no baggage man because I doubt you remember this. You probably don't remember this. But when uh, Discovery uh, was first announced, I actually uh, had the nerve to tweet at you one time. And oh, the nerve. I was complaining about how some of my Star Trek fans were obsessing about how this doesn't look like Star Trek. Duh, the guy that loves Alex is going gonna, is gonna, to you know, jump to his defense. You said something to me to the effect of, the, the thing that's wonderful about you is that you aren't in it yet. You are a no-baggage fan. That was so unique and so kind of you to say, but now I can't say that because now I'm one of you. You were fresh to Trek then? I wasn't fresh to Trek, but I wasn't in it like I am now. I wasn't swimming in it. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't in the community, right? Or even drowning in it. Yeah. 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 Discovery, <laughs> Discovery is the first Star Trek show that I get to experience as it comes out, mm-hmm. right? From season to season. So Absolutely. I totally right, get it. Right. The fact is, it came from a guy that, you know, was a part of, you know, my favorite little corner of Star Trek history, the Kelvin Timeline. And the fact that he was entrusted with bringing Star Trek back to TV mm-hmm. meant a lot to me. And to see people attack him for what they perceived that he did to their childhood really pissed me off. So it took me a long time to learn how to find a positive pocket of this Star Trek fandom who had issues with Alice Kurtzman but didn't disrespect him. What's hard for people to get is that a lot of people chalk a lot of stuff up to Alex. A lot of the look of it's Discovery out fault. the gate was Brian's thing. Yeah. It was Brian's thing. They hired the people, the designers. They spent the, the Klingon ship and the bridge. And remember how they were talking about, look at the floor grid. It's like all, millions of little Klingon skulls are part of yeah. them. You know, like all the yeah. little details that they were like, well, that's great. And that's wonderful. And it's wonderful for behind the scenes things. But that was like time and attention and money spent on that. And if they had known in the beginning that they were going to go through two or three hoops of writers and mix and match, you know, writing teams and even mm-hmm. things behind the scenes, too, until things settle down, like at the end of the season <laughs> yeah. and then take a breath and then go into the second season. You know, but no, I mean, out of the gate, I'm like. Uh, touch screens and smart hollow viewers where you, you know doing? the furniture in the room you're projecting into. But if you notice, and then and then as I got to talk to people whose names won't be you know revealed, but people who were by the second or third era of people involved with the show, those people were frustrated with those decisions too. But you can't just throw all that out. It's the established look unless you mm-hmm. until you get the opportunity to do something with it. And then you start sliding things in like, you know, like, oh, those holograms messed up our engineering. So we're going to rip up. I was laughing the first season. I said, they're going to figure out that uh, touch screens for that era, for 10 years before Kirk and Spock, touch screens and holograms uh, cause cancer. <laughs> so they're going to take, you know, well, they did the next best thing. The, the yeah. one causes like, you know, system malfunction. 
one more thing about Alex because uh, the people who know me personally and my structured friends know that I love Alex, so I really want to drive the knife in. I've heard you're a big fan of his. <laughs> Seriously? Are you just... Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, on this show, I heard that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fuck, now I can't even focus anymore. Jesus, thanks, Larry. Sorry. I, I have that power. You were saying no. about being a fan of Alex. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Alex is on record saying that he couldn't wait to get the hell out of season one of Star Trek Discovery because he totally wanted to get the hell out of the Klingon storyline. And one of his favorite episodes that he ever wrote, but it's the episode called... Where Such Discovery Sweet Sorrow. ...where the Discovery, you know, shoots in the, you know, shoots through the black hole and goes to the future. And that is my favorite episode of Discovery ever. You know why? Not because the episode was great, but the last couple the last 10 minutes of that episode when when uh number one pike and spock are talking to starfleet and they're saying you know we don't we don't know where discovery went you know they they just Mm -hmm. disappeared we don't know where they went and as i was watching that episode i was screaming and hopping up and down i was being so loud that my family just came into the room because they thought I was having a heart attack. And I turned to them, <laughs> I turned to them and no lie, I said, oh, thank God, no more cannon holes. I'm like, oh, Alice can do what he wants now. They fixed it, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about Michael Pillar a little bit? Like so many people who have passed, much less yeah. older generations, but like not even not here or around anymore. And unlike Gene Kuhn, Michael Pillar did get to do a lot of interviews, and there's a lot of camera footage of him. So it's not like he's a total enigma, almost like Gene Kuhn is from the original series. But yeah, um, there's this weird little game you can play. I think we got into a little on Twitter, where you know it's like uh, the you know you that moniker like the you say the man. Okay, it can be the person. The person who saves Star Trek is that Harv Bennett and or uh, Nick Meyer to keep the movies going, to come in and make Rathacon what it was after the motion picture, as beloved as it is by many, was kind of an eh to the world at large. And what would be the people with the suits and the bean counters let happen with Star Trek after that at Paramount? Or would it be like, would, would Star Trek have really survived out of the gate when Gene was like collapsing under the weight and the pressure of doing it, you know, and, and Bob Justman can only stand on his desk and yell for a script so often before that wore out. And do you say, well, maybe that was Gene Kuhn, you know, or, and not to denigrate, you know, Dorothy Fontana. And then next generation, do you say that was Michael Piller? Because it wasn't that, I mean, Maury Hurley took himself out and left. They were, they were, there was the chaos on the bridge, craziness and it was going to start settling down a little bit because the instigator of most of that was Leonard Majlis, Gene's attorney, as Gene's health was going down and keeping everybody stirred up and the chaos going. Some people think the only way to survive, and I would like to say we've all seen this in politics lately, the only way to survive is if you feel like you've got shortcomings or if you're paranoid for some reason, like your health is declining or you feel like you got burned once and you're never, ever going to let that happen again, like losing control of the franchise in the movie era or getting canceled when you thought the show was great. You know, take your pick there for Gene. So he's got his attack dog, you know, the good cop, bad cop, and his bad cop was Leonard Majlis, and that's what the Chaos on the Bridge documentary was all about. 
but he's intentionally stirring things up to keep everybody off kilter so that no one else approaches anywhere near the power and the clout of Gene. The trouble is Gene's having many strokes and is going downhill and within a couple of years will not be with us anymore in that time frame. Mm. But the upshot of that was, was so many of the writers, you know, they, the, what they had to put on camera, what they had to deliver that Rick Berman was overseeing, you know, start, they, they changed DPs. Uh, Marvin Rush came third season about the same time too. And the show looked much, much better, but you know, they, they delivered on camera. They got a product out and people were enjoying it because it was Star Trek and there was no other science fiction all out. And people were, you know, some of the act, you know, Patrick and Brent and all the actors, some of them were a little slower to develop as characters, but people were loving it. And it was there, but it wasn't the breakout hit. The old fandom and some new were finding it. And then not until Best of Both Worlds summer did things like, you know, blow up sky high. And then from then on in, it was the sky's the limit, to quote a phrase. But but Maury Hurley leaving that crazy chaos and then having Michael Wagner for about six weeks before it was too much for him. And then these guys like it's like handing off the keys to the Titanic or something. Well, it wasn't quite sinking, but it was not quite going for, you know, and then Michael Piller coming in, bless his heart into the season. There are three or four shows in and he's like making up for lost time. He's Wiley e. Coyote trying to get on top of his rocket shoes, you know, <laughs> instead of being dragged along. And by the middle of the season, they start to get it under control. And then by the end of the season, they're on top of it. And then Best of Both Worlds happens. So not that Next Generation would have failed, but would it have ever become the monster that it became if not for Michael? Everything else is kind of an outgrowth after that. I mean, Manny would have been great to have saved Enterprise. I had this crazy idea uh, the other night. I don't think Alex would ever do this. What do you think of bringing back Enterprise for fifth season? animated here's the thing i think all cards are on the table i think alex if he didn't have the vision somebody gave it to him and he's taken it and run with it but i think it was in him i think he knew it's what i've been saying for ages it's when sto when star trek online the game finally came out it survived through some hiccups to be launched and when it came out star trek has more usable material in its universe has more canon material on film or even just mentioned one time than any other franchise. I'm, I'm sorry, Star Wars. Star Wars is starting to get there. So much of Star Wars was novels and trading cards and RPG games. But Star Trek had all these empires and all these other governments, all these races, all this history, backstory characters on screen for its, you know, 700 whatever hours. Um. And it's it's like, yes, it would make a great massive multiplayer game. And yes, what I wanted is a, when I was in the 90s, I'm like, geez, how great it would be to have a founding of the Federation miniseries, you know, much like and a Romulan war. And a, how about a series halfway between Kirk and Picard? And how about a series halfway between founding of the Federation and Kirk? And how about a Klingon series? And how, how about a Tellarite series? How about, you know, and now I say, how about a West Star Trek West Wing, where it's all about the politics going on and at Federation Council, and you can you can get into all the planets, and you can go to places under the guise of this, but you can have the standing sets be the council chambers in San Francisco and the president's office in Paris. And does any other planet really resent the fact that all the good stuff is on Earth? You know, like you know, all the member worlds. I mean, there is there are so many things, and then people have wanted like a you know the Black Ops, whatever, which might be Section, section Thirty One, with, with a sense of humor. I hope. But, you know, then there are all so many niches from the but they'd all be like maybe little series. And in the old days, it was like, well, you could never commit to that kind of a show because 
the the you know the overhead is too big. Well, now you could even do a fifteen minute short treks, much less do a a three part you know whatever, or do a one season shorty, or do a yeah, two yeah. hour movie or whatever. You can do the the sky's the limit on what you can do as a format, and Alex mm-hmm. gets that. And they can only do so much at a time and they don't want to burn people out. But this short form and we won't overlap, you know, split the audience kind of a thing is that that might be in the long run. That might be his. I used to say I wish Rick had done the Dick Wolf thing and just put his name on the plate and taken his set things up overseen. Take your 10 percent or 15 percent, whatever. Try to like hands on do everything because you'll be exhausted and you'll only have they wound up with like two series back in the day in movies and it eventually i think everybody got burned out Mm -hmm. so yeah that might be the but the the jury is still out we've got a lot of time to go but right now i would say and a lot of people resent that and they go what do you mean larry but i talk about the buffet of star trek and maybe you don't like every single flavor it's like ice cream right now yes yes so how excited are you about strange new worlds because i am ridiculously excited Very. you have no idea oh my god um i oh now let's not set the bar too high let's no, no, not go, like, no, set no, ourselves no, up not. for disappointment but yes when anson when they said in that very first even before they akiva goldsman and some of the rest of them kind of went there when he said he mentioned words like um you know like weekly adventure i don't think he said standalone but when he said the optimistic he said the O word optimism, and he said the uh, something like the S word standalone. Standalone, yeah. Uh, you know, but it was a throwback to original slash next gen type. You know, the non heavy serialized storytelling. Oh look, we're not in love with being the Game of Thrones in space now. <laughs> you know, but that was like the industry bar. That was like, oh, if we could just be better than that. Yeah, I, yeah but yeah, but I, I I personally don't think that Discovery hasn't been that since season one. I think well, that's true. Yes, right. exactly. Right, right. I think I think Discovery has gone way past that. But you were saying about Stranger Worlds, we've talked enough about Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it went, you know, without hitting it over the head, they'll they will definitely and they'll be, you know, we say standalone. There were running arcs in even the original series had Spock and Chapel and it had, you know, just McCoy and Spock being the running, you know, banter and all that kind of thing. There were mm-hmm. some running you know, Chekhov and his Russian joke. I mean, it maybe not have been a, but it was at least recurring bits. And then the movie, and then, but next gen had, you know, Worf and his discommendation, uh, Deanna and her mother, you know, Riker taking a command or not, Jordy and his, you know, women troubles, <laughs> uh, you know, Data looking for his humanity. I mean, they had like running arcs a little bit. They weren't totally just one off things. And they, you know, and then occasionally you'd have a specific show that would service that. And then DS9 stepped it up and then Voyager kind of fumbled around with it a little bit. No, really? No, actually, Voyager, actually, I'm going through Voyager right now uh, for the, people know this, so I'm not going to lie. For the, for the first time, I'm going all the way through it. And the thing that drives me nuts about Voyager is that there are no consequences to anything. Yeah. I'm like, oh, why, Rick? Why? Come on, serialized. Why can't you do just a little DS? I was... Uh, um, well, there were consequences in Next Gen. I mean, like Worf, yeah. when he met a Klingon while he was discommodated, people would always have a line or two about, oh, I'm not talking to him, you know, yeah, kind of a thing. Right. That would be there a little bit, right. yeah. Right, right. but I, I, 
I distinctly remember watching uh, the two-part episode, uh, The Year of Hell. And I, mm-hmm. and I and all throughout that episode, I was like, God damn it, Rick, if you would have let uh, um, uh, Fuller and the rest of the writing team turn this goddamn story, story, turn this two-part episode into a serialized story for the entire season, this would have been awesome. But because you were so obsessed with doing different stories every week oh my god i'm like this oh yeah yeah well it would have been ahead of its time except that that's what ds9 was doing with the dominion war about that time or just yeah about that time so yeah and that was on um, a network where ds9 was still syndicated and so there was the pressure but not quite the same pressure from whoever the little tin pot executives were that year at upn before moonves and cbs just took it over and said, oh you idiots get out of here we're just going to run it from CBS HQ. No, the thing that um, the the thing that the, the brilliant thing that I think that Ira Stephen Bear did with with uh, with Rick Berman is that Ira stood up to Rick Berman from from what I understand. He he basically said, "No, I'm going to do the story I want, and whatever you say, I'm not going to listen to you." Or or he told him one thing, and then he turned halfway around and did what he wanted. What? Uh, 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 well, I would just say it wasn't it wasn't like adversarial. It wasn't no, like you do not. this. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that because then you have insubordination and you can't. That's have not that. good. So You're going to get fired. It was more a case of they would want to do this. Uh, Rick might push back. He might be distracted because Voyager is the network show. And <laughs> it got all the hoopla. But, uh, you know, and, and DS9 was like. TNG afters like leftovers being syndicated a little bit like TNG was getting all the glory and nobody had any illusions that DS9 would ever go to movie level, just like they never thought that Voyager, you know, in the old school, the way the originals did and the way next gens did. But um, it wasn't so much about like yelling and I'm on top of you. I'm your boss. And, you know, I know, but I'm going to yell. It was it's the way the collaborative process goes, which is somebody says something. You know, Iris says something. Rick says, eh, I don't know. Let's not do that. And then Iris says, really? And but there's pushback. And when I say pushback, I don't mean today like angry trolling online. I mean, there's back and forth. It's a negotiation. It's give. It's creative. It's creativity. It's brainstorming in slow motion. And and some people could say, let's do this. And Rick says, no, let's not do that. And then somebody says, OK, or somebody else would say, Really? Well, what about this, this, and this? And then the pushback that Rick says, well, maybe that and that, but I don't know about that. And then somebody, you know, but I mean, there's this back and forth. And and if it needed to go there, sometimes they would still hit a brick wall or they would have an impasse. But a lot of times it's just that Ira would go a second or third or fourth round. Not like it's a knock, not like it's a boxing match and who's going to remain standing, but that's just the give and take of conceptualizing tv and i think part of it was rick would be distracted with voyager or with the movie of the moment right or you know first contact and then and then uh insurrection or he would push back and forth or voyager was stealing his attention but i don't Mm -hmm. think you know and occasionally they would you know and as it got into the big decisions and then like wrapping up the show they all kind of came back but i part of it also is when when um, Ira would be that forceful about something, and I don't mean forceful like I'm going to burn your house down if you don't agree with me. I mean just the fact that he kept coming back, you know, to talk about things and didn't just say okay and walked away. 
but they would, you know, and probably offering something, not just saying the same thing over and over. That's not negotiating, but coming back with, you know, maneuvering around the issue or here's another way. I hear your objections. How about we do this, but we get it done by this way. And that's that's not about arguing. That's just about finding a way for everybody to get what they want. But it's also exhausting and time consuming. And I think that's what was really going on there. If Rick felt like he had the energy and the and the and the attention span to talk about it and wasn't pulled away by Voyager or the movie or whatever was going on or whatever. He was covering a lot from not so much from the studio, but like Voyager had a network layer that was ridiculous. And then Enterprise did. Well, Enterprise was after DS9, but, um, you know, the boy bands and the mess hall. Every oh, week kind that of. was ridiculous. Yeah, but so <laughs> typical, but so typical. And then you wonder why UPN was failing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Case in point. But I would, I, so I would just say when you say Rick pushed, you know, fought back against Rick on DS9, I would say he he fought back. He pu- he pushed back. He he kept standing they had up a, for what they wanted to do, and yeah. they kept talking about it, and not just went, okay, fine, we're running out of time, go back. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. They or had I'm tired, a, go back. <laughs> yeah, they had a civil conversation about it. Yeah, well, it's that's the way that's the way work goes. Yeah, if you're yeah. doing it all, that's the way any job place would Anything be. That's yeah. the way of hopefully re- any relationship is. Yeah. But sometimes that's not just about yelling. Sometimes that just it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And so finding the energy to come back, you know, depending on what, and you know, it's like it's the whole thing about, do you really want to die on this hill? Is this really the battle you want to, you know, you really want to pick this for a battle. And sometimes right. it was like, nah, not a big deal. But occasionally the things, you know, the things that I will talk about, and that's probably the things that people love the most <laughs> yeah. and go, well, where'd this come from? Well, actually it almost <laughs> wasn't that way, but you know, kind of a thing. No, but no, but the thing that I love about Ira is that anytime, anytime that he does an interview, he always brings up Michael Piller. And mm-hmm. I think, I think that he is tremendously grateful for the, sure. the imprint that Michael left on DS9 before Michael became its custodian, so to speak. I mean, yeah, launching it. Well, and, and, and the imprint he brought to Next Gen that allowed there to be enough foam in Star Trek to want to have a spinoff right, and then right. it, have it be DS9. Yeah, on that note, guys, uh, this conversation went uh, a little bit too long and down a path that I never imagined, but I, I had fun. And uh, uh, is Oh, no, that- I hope it, when you say not imagined, do you mean like down a path darkly or what do you mean? My acumen as a as a podcast host went totally out the window the first ten minutes of the show. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. No, I'm it's sorry. totally fine. No, 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 no. No, it's it's totally fine. You you are one of my fandom idols, so I should have known this was going to happen. Oh, um, but thank you. Yeah, but is there anything that you would like to promote? I you know whatever's going on in Trekland, if people just go to LarryNimichek.com, whatever's happening will be there. Uh, I've, you know, we started a, a podcast or a, a live show, a live streaming show called Life Support Live with Dr. Trek and Dr. Ali. One of us is a real doctor, but we decided to merge up Star Trek and, you know, I say mental health, but it's, it's a light touch. It's like, you know, tips for daily living. And we look at a theme every week. And we geek out on Trek and we each, he and I both bring our strong suit and we merge. And a lot of people, we have a great community there, but the live shows, but I mean, that's the last four or five years that's become a thing. Trek Files is the podcast from Roddenberry. And then Trekland Tuesdays Live is my live show I do on Tuesdays. And we have, you know, chat interaction. 
I'd love to have people call in like they do on mission log, but I'm trying to keep it to be a one man band kind of a situation. So, but yeah, all that, but, but uh, portal 47 is really, you talk about backgrounding. If, if um, people are interested in this, I really, when I said I made portal 47 for all the star Trek fans who have no idea how much star Trek they have no idea about. That's totally what I mean. I was really trying to give fans that, and also give all these behind the scenes people of all different stripes and fields uh, a platform to tell, to share their stories and share their pictures. A lot of them have, if they're crappy Polaroids, we clean them up, <laughs> but a lot of folks have, you know, pictures that are, that are great to share and never had access to this. And some of them have maybe been interviewed, you know, in a magazine or maybe done a convention, but it's like, we have new fans coming in all the time and things turn over and, um, and we've had actually had some original series people, uh, which has been awesome. But I'm I'm all about trying to preserve as much of this and let people have their voice and get fans, not just get fans what they want, but get fans stuff they don't even know that they want. <laughs> you know, and then we do the day tours. I, I work with Geek Nation Tours to do these big film site tours of, of around L.A. of Star Trek sites. And we do those every two or three years around a, usually around one of the big conventions, either Trek Vegas or now the Reed Pop shows. Uh, but I if you're in L.A. on a vacation, I do a thing I call Trekland Treks for uh, if you want to, if you have a day, we work out the day and then I send you a menu of like over 40, you know, from Vasquez Rocks and the Tillman Water Plant that's Starfleet Academy all the way down to something really obscure. And we work it out and go to four places and have lunch in the day. And um, and I, you know, I give you tons of information and I I take your pictures if you're cosplaying or you bring your stuffed animal along or whatever it is you do. <laughs> Uh, that's been a lot of fun, but all this experiential stuff in the old days, it was like, get up and share, you know, fact, 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 fact. And that's still awesome. But now there's a lot of people doing that. And a lot of, you know, there's more books out now and there's, um, there's still things that, that aren't, that I've got preserved over here in these tapes. I need to digitize and get out, but, um, it's experiences too, that people don't. And you know what? And we keep having more new fans all the time that don't know there are no baggage fans, in all the ways. And some of that is just making sure they feel like just because they're a new fan doesn't mean they're either going to get overwhelmed by too much factoiding or they're pushed aside because they're a new fan. They don't know everything yet, which both of those can happen. And I hopefully we we can guard against, you know, that happening to newer fans. So, mm. um, yeah, but I invite anybody to come down, come by the basic website and check out what's going on and um, get on my newsletter. And uh, I don't spam people. <laughs> and keep up with what's happening in Trekland. Yeah, actually, I'm on your newsletter, actually. And you know, I'm some. I've let whole months go by without doing one, and shame on me. But yeah, 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 I do know. But you're a busy guy, so I kind of forgive you for that. Yeah, but uh, if you're going to have something, you need to do it right. So I've had an assistant uh, for the last few months, so I'm trying to get more on top of things like that. So, oh, that's great. All going. Thank you so much for being here. It meant so much to me, and I hope that you had fun. Thank you. I did. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, guys. So that'll do it for this edition of the Red Wall podcast, episode number 84, entitled Dr. Trek. Listen, if you guys like anything at all that I'm doing here this season um, and you're a regular viewer of my podcast and you haven't done so already, I would appreciate a comment, a like or subscribe on whatever podcast service you happen to be listening to me on at this very moment, but I really, really, really appreciate anyone that listens to my show. If you know me personally or online, you know that's not 
me blowing smoke up your ass. I really do appreciate you guys. So uh, with all that being said, until next time, I'll see you when I see you.